Hello, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. So this week we're talking with Dr. Will Torrey. He is the Interim Chair of Psychiatry at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. And in full disclosure, he was one of my psychiatry supervisors during residency. We talked with him about mental health care and leadership perspectives. So let's have a listen. So, Dr. Will Torrey, I am so happy to have you on the podcast. I have to admit that you were one of the instrumental mentors that I had as a psychiatry resident. You were a fabulous supervisor. And so to get to talk with you years later about work that is relevant to both of us is really quite an honor. So thanks for joining us here. Well, thanks, Wendy. It's great to be with you. And also, it's been exciting to read your work and to learn something about what you've been thinking about over the last several years, which is so important to our field. Thanks. Would you mind to just tell our listeners sort of what your background is and what your, what your work is now? Sure. Currently, I am the uh, Ray Sabel Professor of Psychiatry and Interim Chair of Psychiatry at uh, Dartmouth Geisel School of Medicine and Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Um, uh, so that entails um, overseeing the um, missions of the Department of Psychiatry, which include you know, creating new knowledge and understanding in our field, pa- uh, passing on that knowledge to all kinds of learners, and then applying that knowledge in the care of individuals and in populations of people. So how do you help people to uh, turn towards these common illnesses that we care for, uh, addiction and, and mental illnesses that, you know, affect almost 50% of our population over a course of a lifetime. So extremely common, very important, um, very treatable, um, and uh, painful when they happen. The other context that I think is important is while you're also meeting the mission of the organizations, you're taking care of the people who are doing the work of meeting those missions. Right. So, the yeah, I've had just a really uh, uh, interesting career over time. Um, the uh, you know really all the missions are around uh, human development. When, when we're uh, working with individuals who are living with a psychiatric uh, difficulty, we're trying to engage that individual, figure out what matters in their life, how to use our full self to help them get, get on with life in, uh, in a way that they're choosing to do, um, you know, using all the tools that are available, psychosocial interventions, um, medicines, other somatic treatments, um, our humanity. Um, so we're just trying to help the person move forward in their life. But the same thing's true with our learners. You know, we're, we have medical students, residents, fellows, um, other physicians who are, you know, working alongside us in other fields. Uh, and and for all those uh, all the learners, you know, our aim is to move help them to be engaged and inspired and to use their uh, learn uh, learn how to uh, be effective with their selves uh, in in the world and to gain more and more skill. Uh, and then the same thing's true with the faculty. Um, you know, we we hire people at all different stages in their careers. Um, and you know what's going to 
help them to have the impact they could have with their lives. What's going to help them is to feel excited, to be uh, feeling like they're in a community of others who are trying to meet this mission together uh, and where they're learning and growing. Total impact someone has over their life really has to do with both how engaged they are and how long they're able to do it in an effective manner. So, you know, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, and, but we're trying to help people to um, support people in having the, you know, using their lives in a way that's meaningful and important and has an impact on the lives of others through this work. So really, human development is kind of the key in patient care, education, and in faculty development. It, you know, it's also the aim of research, right? Research, the research aim is to also create the, the knowledge and uh, to, to know how to do those things effectively, to, you know, using science to advance our understanding of how to be effective in all those roles. So obviously there's a lot of challenges there. Um, but you must have seen a lot of changes through your career um, in both the, uh, the way that doctors practice and um, other clinicians practice and in the relationship between clinicians and the organizations that they work at, which obviously has some impact on their abilities to, to do their job. Can you talk a little bit about those changes that you've seen? You know, I think one of the interesting things that's happened uh, in our field in psychiatry uh, is that uh, we've gained a lot more knowledge of neuroscience and of uh, the impact that medicines can play in supporting people's lives. Um, and, you know, when I came into the field, there was sort of a, um, a clear recognition of the role of psychotherapy for that psychiatry. And, and part of what brought psychiatrists into the field was the opportunity to engage in uh, offering psychotherapy as well as whatever else was available. And over time, um, the, there, in, in the field, there was this push or this pressure to move uh, psychiatrists more and more into a role of addressing somatic treatments, medicines, ECT, TMS, and, and, and not offered psychotherapy directly. Um, and I think what started to happen is that in psychiatry, uh, there were, there, the language got in the way. Um, people started making a distinction between uh, care that was around helping people sort out what roles medicines might have in supporting their lives and, and everything else. And so they started to call the, the visits uh, kind of med management visits or psychopharmacology visits. Um, and 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 I think that that and that was kind of in distinction to psych uh, therapy, you know, at first. But I think the language actually started to box in people's sense of what their job was, um, and you know, art and people lost track a little bit of what the aim is, and and we're really trying to move the field back to what the aim is. And the aim is not to help people manage their medicines. The aim is to support people's health and life and function and help them to get on with life and to have the hope and the, under, you know, the self-confidence to, uh, and the skills to get into the driver's seat of their life. Um, so, um, so in psychiatry, um, you know, you, medicines are don't really mean anything unless they're helping the person to 
make their life come out the way they want it to come out. Um, and so I think that that narrowing of the sense of what a psychiatrist is what, it was a big problem and that people are now trying to find the right language. So I've, I've been advocating to not ever call it med management or psychopharmacology, but to use language like, you know, psychiatric care in the same, you know, like a primary care doctor isn't a, isn't a primary care pharmacologist. They're, prim, you know, they, they provide <laughs> care, right? They provide <laughs> primary care. And OBGYN provides maternal care. Um, and and we and what we or they you know um, and what we provide is psychiatric care. So it puts the emphasis on care, which is the really the aim, and and it takes away the emphasis on medicines uh, because uh, medicines just are just one of many tools. And actually, if you call it medicine all the time, you actually narrow the scope of what you think you're trying to accomplish and you miss other things that might be more helpful for the individual. Yeah, and, and when I think about that, the reason the reason that those got divided was because of a billing issue, right? So psychiatrists got moved into that role to as, as part of a, an approach to reimbursement. I think that was part of it. Um, I, I think that the part of the push in that direction was that psychiatrists and now psychiatric nurse practitioners are able to uh, offer medicines to individuals, whereas, the, and there are other people who are skilled at psychotherapy. So you have licensed social workers and licensed psychologists who, you know, are very good at psychotherapy, um, and and that they cost less. To offer that service, so it's the idea was to use a more expensive uh, resource, the psychiatrist, to do the things that only they can do, uh, and um, and you know which is which is fine. And if you're thinking about resource allocation, you only have so much resource, and you're trying to maximize the health benefit from that resource, that's fine. It's just that the um, that in fact, even offering medicines requires that you you know, talk to the person, that you understand what's important to them in their life, that, that, you know, why would I take a medicine from a doctor if I didn't think they knew me or cared about me? So you have to be able to connect with the individual. So the, the, the issue of psychiatric care involves caring. It involves, uh, you know, knowing, you know, finding out how to know that person, uh, what matters to them in their lives, how to help them to move forward in their life. So it's a lot more than knowing the right diagnosis and the medicine that might go along with that. And, and I think that, uh, and I don't think anyone, you know, people don't go into the field to, to, to just process patients. They go into the field to connect with those people and make their life, help make their lives go better in a meaningful kind of way. You know, it, it's it's funny that you you talk about the, the word care so much in these, in these discussions. And, you know, some people use the term putting the caring back into healthcare and and that's totally accurate in so many ways um and the other point you make which i think is is really interesting is the idea that people don't go into a specialty like psychiatry so that they can dish out medications without understanding the background for the patient and and, and all those kind of things and they're really important points that we hear all the time but you've just put beautifully into little encapsulation there of, of the changes um over time so thank you when we talked a couple of months ago, you talked really poignantly about 
a discrepancy in how we treat mental health care and how we treat other somatic diagnoses. And you particularly pointed out how in certain diagnoses, um, there are assigned to case managers or care managers and navigators. And I wonder if you could share that with our listeners. So here, here in New Hampshire, we've had an interesting um, individual uh, who's helped uh, educate the public about um, mental illness. Uh, and he's the former chief justice of the New Hampshire Supreme Court, a guy named uh, Justice Broderick. And so he's retired. And he had an experience while he was chief justice of his son developing uh, illness that led his son to assault him and actually put him in the hospital while he was chief justice. And the son went to prison and um, in, in our state, um, and, and his son's doing very well now. And in his retirement, uh, Justice Broderick has gone around the state and talked to you know thousands of people at high schools and uh, you know all around talking about mental illness and the importance of men, uh, recognizing illness and asking for help and just done a lot to decrease uh, uh, you know to increase knowledge and understanding of our field. So at any rate, at one point he asked me. Um, you know, he's a lawyer, so he's good at asking these terse questions, you know, so he said to me, he said, okay, Dr. Tori, you know, how would you rate uh, uh, the quality of mental health care uh, in our country on a scale of one to 10? So uh, like I'm in court, you know, having to give an opinion. So, <laughs> so I, I thought about it a little bit and, and, um, and I ended up thinking, well, what would be 10 level health care? And, and, and so I, my wife, um, a few years ago, developed breast cancer. So she she was she uh, went to the her normal screening mammography. The radiologist made a good call. It wasn't that easy to find. She met quickly with the surgeon. Um, when she met with the surgeon, uh, she was introduced to a care navigator um, who would help her get through the cancer care. Um, she was given a gift basket. She was. Uh, um, given uh, access to information about cancer, uh, she good websites. She looks on the websites. That what's on the websites is exactly what is being recommended to her. She's you know has the surgery. She meets with the radiation oncologist or in the oncologist and then the radiation therapy uh, physician. You know she just goes through the care um, and you know it, no one wants to have a serious health condition. You know it was not. You know, it was shocking and a lot to adjust to, and uh, but and she's doing well now. But fundamentally, it was 10 out of 10 care. I mean, she it, she was engaged, she was cared for, she was uh, paid attention to, she got care that addressed the concern that she met with. It was found quickly. It was so. What you had was a system that was prepared for her. Right? There's a common illness. You know, pe the system screened it. They were prepared for her. The treatment was laid out. That she just worked right into the treatment when it's there. Now that just does not exist in mental illness. It just doesn't exist. The system. You know, it's only now that we're systematically screening for depression, anxiety, alcohol use disorder, other substances in primary care, in emergency rooms. We're just now asking about suicide in emergency rooms. Um, um, the, um, so I would, I thought really this cancer care is about 10 out of 10 care, uh, and the, but, and yet 
I would have to say nationally, probably psychiatric care is about one or two out of 10. You know, it, it's very hard to access quality evidence-based care in a timely fashion if you have a substance use disorder or a psychiatric or another psychiatric, you know, mental health concern. Um, you have to fight for it. It's hard to find it when you, you don't reliably know what the quality is going to be. It's as though it's a surprise to the system every time it comes up, even though one in 100 people has schizophrenia and one in 100 people has bipolar illness. If, if you get psychotic, the system in many parts of the country is not prepared for that, even though it's an extremely common uh, condition. Um, even depression, which you know, I think primary care is getting better at caring for, uh, isn't universally screened for, and so uh, it does. Uh, so, so here you have these common conditions that are, are we all know are going to happen. Uh, everyone's family is affected by this. Suicide is the tenth most common cause of death in this country, um, and and much higher cause of death in in people, uh, you know from teenage years through their 30s and 40s. It's the third or fourth most common cause of death. Um, and so, so here's these really common difficulties that the system's just not ready for. Um, and so, um, I mean, there are pockets of outstanding care, but, but generally speaking, it's just not there. So, so and why is that? I just started to I just start to think about it and think about the history of that. And in, in cancer care, you had, uh, going back to the, uh, you know, 1950s, you start to have philanthropists who were uh, putting, uh, taking cancer seriously. It was a stigmatized illness, right? Um, and 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 then then you had people like Sidney Farber uh, putting a, a face on cancer with the Jimmy Fund, right? You know Jimmy, this kid from Maine, you know, who is a likable person who starts to be the face of cancer and raising money to move towards cancer, better cancer care. And the same thing started to happen in, um, you know, and it ends up with a war on cancer and, you know, and federal money going into it. And so now you have comprehensive cancer centers that are prepared. And, and here in New Hampshire, we have a cancer center at Dartmouth which just had a fundraiser raised $4 million this year, you know, just for cancer research and care. You know, we don't have anything like that in mental health. And I don't know, the same thing happened with HIV, you know, that it was stigmatized, people weren't paying attention to it. And then people got mad and active and, and started to protest. And, and, um, and they, you know, they went to the National Institute of health and picketed outside and instead of being rounded up by the police the director brought them into the office and talked to them and and started to come up with a plan and and now we have you know good hiv care we know a lot more scientifically and we have programs that support people in for hiv so you know that's what we need in mental health i mean it's not impossible to make it it's it, we shouldn't feel mired in this like it's going to be this way forever we we can turn towards it and and make a difference and for these common difficulties. I mean, everyone's lives are touched by cancer, but everyone's lives are touched by mental health issues too. And so really we, sh in addiction. So it's just a matter of getting us all going. So I think what is great about how you're looking at things right now is you're not only looking at the individual perspective or the organizational perspective, you're also looking at the systems perspective. And so as a leader in healthcare right now, sort of by definition as a as the interim chair how do you think about 
bringing the next generation of leaders forward. How do you think about how you as a healthcare leader are addressing the challenges that we face, but also how to how do we nurture the next generation? Well, I think we have, you know, I, I, I think we continue to have amazing people going into medicine and, and psychology and other healthcare fields. Um, so it, the talent is there. Um, the, the, I mean, my wife is, uh, on the, is, works for admissions at Geisel. They had 7,000 applicants for 90 slots uh, last year. So, I mean, there's great people trying to go into medicine and, they, uh, and that, are, that are admitted. Um, you know, for one thing, um, I think it's partly, uh, you know, this, I mean, talking, right? You, you want to get people to understand what the issues are and, and think about how, to, how they can use their own energy and talents to move, uh, uh, move towards a better future and, and feel like they, they have a say in what happens uh, moving forward. Um, so you want to help people to understand their own power and help them to know how to use it effectively. Um, and so the, um, you know, we are fortunate here at Dartmouth to have really good education in psychiatry, for example. This next year, almost 20 of the Geisel uh, Medical School graduates are seriously considering going into psychiatry. So that's out of a class of 90. So. So when you have really good teaching and, and role models um, uh, that, that the students can look up to uh, and understand, they can start to envision themselves doing that kind of work, then people want to do it and they move into it and they move into it with energy and enthusiasm. Um, and, and, you know, I think psychiatry is, I mean, completely interesting. And I think for, you know, the same sorts of things that bring people in, um, you know, there are a lot of social justice issues that you can address as a psychiatrist. There's just a lot that the kinds of uh, idealism, idealism that brings people into medicine, you can ha have a career in this field that, uh, that, that uses that impulse and, uh, over, and it stays interesting over, you know, 30, 40 years. It doesn't get boring in any way. You know, one of the things that we found with a lot of physicians is that they feel like they have to change everything all at once and they get impatient with the pace of change. What would you say to either an, an early career physician who's, who's kind of facing this, this enormous amount of change that we need to make, or even somebody thinking about, you know, somebody in training? How, do, how would they approach, in practical terms, making those changes? Well, that's a great question. I think that part of it is getting a little bit of a sense of what matters to you, like what, what since you can't change everything, what, what actually matters to you and where do you, where do you want to be building your skill and experience and knowledge, like what part of it. Uh, so it might be sort of being a really good educator to bring along other people or inspiring them that way. It might be that you find that you get very interested in systems and how you can use yourself to um, make a clinical improvement. It might be that you get interested in advocacy and you learn how to talk to legislators or how to move in that direction. I think people, I think that people do the best in their uh, careers are most satisfied if they're both doing the work, they're like 
uh, and they have some other angle on it, either a teaching angle, research, or advocacy, some other angle. So they're sort of getting to do both things, uh, or a quality improvement angle. All of those things help make the, uh, you know, the work itself informs those other perspectives, and those other perspectives make you do a better job at the at the work, actually. Um, so, you know, I mean, I found just coming along that if I, you know, I think my first paper was on uh, caring for, I, I, I inherited, when I, I left residency, I went into community mental health, and I inherited 30 people with intellectual disabilities who had just been deinstitutionalized, um, who were living in the community with, and that, who had behavioral health concerns. And, mm -hmm. I, and I realized, you know, I actually had no training in this area. And, and so I just like dove in and went to conferences and then, and then wrote a paper that was on, you know, what would I have liked to have known when I came into this job? And then that paper ended up helping me to provide better care. It uh, helped me to, uh, allowed me to teach residents and medical students about this area. I had a con conceptual framework that uh, because of thinking it through, because writing is thinking, right? So that writing helped me clinically and it helped me as an educator. And, you know, so I think those set those other angles are really useful. Um, so I, I, I think that's it. And the other thing I think for me is, you know, of course, I'm terribly impatient to make all the, you know, make it a better place. Um, and, and, but, but so for me, it's been helpful to just think about, uh, uh, you know, that, that the process is, tr I, the metaphor that for, I never played football, but the metaphor that is in my head is just sort of trying to move the ball down the field, you know, like you, you're just sort of taking the ball where it is and trying to move it down the field um, and doing what you can. And I think somehow that helps me to both stay in the right zone, you know, I don't get I don't get totally frustrated because it's outrageous. I mean, it's honestly outrageous, the psychiatric care in this country, the lack of access to it. And you can get, your head can blow up just being mad about it, but that doesn't actually help it move forward. So you have to find a, you have to stay outraged enough to stay energized, um, but you can't be so outraged that you, you just get paralyzed. One of the other interesting things that you said, oh, first of all, thank you for the training on intellectual disabilities and behavioral healthcare because I was one of the beneficiaries of that work you did. <laughs> but the other is, you know, what I what we also find is that physicians don't feel like they have influence. And so their outrage quickly dissipates into learned helplessness. How do you think about as a leader supporting the activism of the folks who work for you or are training with you so that they don't lose that steam. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not you personally, but organizations as a whole. Mm -hmm. I think that what's helped me and I think what helps in this situation is uh, is staying focused on the aim. Like, like, what is it that we're trying to accomplish here? That's true in personnel matters, you know, if you're having difficulty with someone uh, or with, with some aspect of their uh, work that... Uh, it, generally speaking, people are actually trying to do the thing that they sit, that that is the aim of the organization. So, you know, I, we're in a big hospital system here. So, the hospital system is actually trying to improve the health of the population and provide outstanding care. That is what it's trying to do. You know, and so if and 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 so if you can um, help people to keep focused on what it is that 
is that that you have in common, the value you have in common, that you're all, we're, you're in a different role, you're all in these different roles, but you're aiming towards the same thing, and can engage people around that thing you're trying to get done, then then you you can find a voice now. Now, organization, I, I remember when I was a resident, I, might, I don't know if I ever said this to you, Wendy, but uh, when I was a resident, I had this great supervisor, uh, George Valiant, and, and I was taking care of, a, and he was my psychotherapy supervisor, and I, I was taking care of a, a person who was a young faculty member who was feeling frustrated in his role um, in, in the hospital and feeling like he wasn't, you know, wasn't being given, the, I don't know, support or whatever it was. And, and George Valiant said, uh, said to me, uh, he said, well, you know, organizations don't love you. Um, and, and what he meant by that uh, was that, um, you know, organizations are trying to get a thing done. And, and each of us, it, it, you know, we're, we're useful to the organization to the extent that we're part of getting that thing done. Um, and, um, and, and so, and and they don't love you like your parents love you, you know. That now, now they they care about you, and they they care, and and the individual who you report to might really care about you as a person, but but in terms of the organization, what what they what they care about is that you are engaged in helping them move towards this mission that's trying to be accomplished. Um, and and so, uh, and and so I think that. I, so I think that helps both to not expect the organization to love you like your parents hopefully loved you, but but that the organ but when you can see that you can that your energy and engagement and drive can help the organization move forward, that then and you can you can speak to that thing that you have in common, then you have a voice and you can show yourself that. As important towards meeting that those goals, and and I think that I think I actually think people have a lot more power than they understand that they have. Well, can I ask you uh, maybe a controversial question on that? Mm -hmm. Do you think institutions or organizations should love you? I mean, we know they don't, but would they get a lot more out of us if they gave us the? Um, maybe the care <laughs> of uh, that we are expected to give to our patients. So, so I think that, yeah, so that, thank you for that clarifying question. I don't think organizations need to love you the way your parents love you. Of course, right. <laughs> Hopefully not. But I think we sort of think that, you know, like, so for example, I think for this, if I'm remembering way back, this individual, you know, he's kind of felt like the organ, that his boss should see that, the important work that he's doing, and without needing to be asked, he should re reward him through, you know, his job description or pay or something like that. And 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 that, you know, so I think individuals need to learn how to advocate for themselves, uh, in because uh, and help the organization see how they help meet the goals of the organization. But having said that, um, also to answer your question directly, I think it's in, I think that it isn't a contradiction. I think that, you know, if, so for me in my role, for example, if, if I think that for the people that are working in this department, that it, for them to meet the organizational goals or the mission goals of this department, 
in this larger organization. It matters a lot that the individuals feel cared for. It matters a lot that that um, that they feel like they bring value to the place, and that that the aim of us as administrators is to uh, uh, create an environment that allows them to use their full energy and drive towards uh, getting this thing done that's so important. I mean, what we're trying to do is really important. And who do we do it with? We do it with the people that are working here, the, with the professionals and with the administrators. And 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 where we want the full that full energy to be moving towards um, towards the out, outcomes that that matter. Um, and so so people do need to feel that they that what they do matters that they, they are important that they're cared for in so that they're able to do that role if so you see what i mean it's a little different yeah. than just purely being loved it's it's being uh valued valued and acknowledged in, in or, for this mission right because because we have a shared mission that's important that we right. both believe in thank you can you give me just one example of how you might demonstrate that you value someone for for what they give to the organization? Well, um, you know, how do you communicate that, right? Like I, I mean, part of it is I'm I might know that I value someone, but I, if if I don't communicate it in some way, um, then that other person might not you know, they may not receive that, right? So, 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 uh, you know, I think saying things out loud matters. Um, so, you know, we created a, a newsletter for the Department of Psychiatry that comes out monthly. And in, in the, um, you know, vice chair for clinical services and research and um, education all write something, and I write something every month. And then we, uh, you know, we celebrate um, people who have gotten grants, people that we get people to, you know, I mean, when I would write papers earlier in my career, you know, I'd write the paper, I'd, you know, take, I don't know, all of you who've written things and gotten them published, you know, there's all these, takes a long time, you, you know, working on the details, you know, they have to get the references right, you know, it's, um, and, you know, it's a lot of work. And then, and then the thing would get published and I'd, get, I'd see it in the paper and, you know, who would know about it except, you know, my mother might know if I sent her a copy of it, you know. And so, um, so the, uh, you know, we, we, every month we celebrate people who have gotten things published. We, we uh, you know, if someone's given a talk at a conference, we talk about it. You know, if they've gotten an award or a grant, you know, we write about it. Um, or, or just thank people uh, for doing things that, you know, the day-to-day -day work that's hard and acknowledge the parts that are hard and, and celebrate uh, you know, the opportunity, you know, coming into COVID, you know, that was a scary time for everyone. It was a scary time for our department. So, so, you know, I wrote about it being scary and about what it was like and, 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 and what my hopes were for the department, uh, uh, how we might come out of that, uh, feeling stronger and, you know, and that, you, you know, we we're fortunate to have, the skills and training to do something that's um, to do work that can make a difference in people's lives, and 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 I think that uh, at the end of the year when things are a little less scary, um, the you know I went back to what 
had written before and, and saw that people had done it. You know, it was an impressive effort and people came through it. And so you thank people. You know, I mean, I try to thank people and write personal notes and things like that. It sounds like you notice, you acknowledge what's hard as well as what's worthy of celebration, and you make it public. Yeah. My father used to say, this just, you know, say, uh, criticism in private, praise in public. Really important. Yeah. Well, Will, Tori, I, I really appreciate you being willing to come on here and, and talk with us. And I look forward to watching your leadership. Well, thanks, Wendy. I'm uh, impressed with what you all are doing. And uh, it's fun to have the chance to talk together. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Take care. Wendy, that was uh, fantastic to have one of your old mentors joining us and talking about all of these things that have transpired over, you know, decades or more since you last uh, were up at Dartmouth Hitchcock. I, I thought one of the things that was uh, fascinating to me was his discussion of health care and the idea that care for people has changed, particularly in the setting of psychiatry and the idea of this move from psychotherapy and you know, non-pharmacologic psychiatry to the idea of medication management and psychopharmacology and how that's sort of a microcosm of some of the things that we have operationalized in medicine. Right. I mean, I think this was starting even when I was in residency and this concept that you could just give people pills and they'd get better suddenly became an idea that a lot of departments grabbed onto and they tried to optimize it by filling spots as much as possible. And then knowing the patient as a whole patient, which is really what he was talking about, became less of a priority. And I think we're seeing this the swing back to recognizing that looking at short-term benefits isn't where it's at. We need to look at long-term benefits, both in psychiatry and elsewhere. And elsewhere, right? It's this yeah. transcends psychiatry. If you look at the way that we follow blood sugars and diabetics, if you look at the way we follow weight in people who are uh, struggling with weight management, looking at the whole person, why they're struggling, what we're doing holistically is something that we have partially ignored in some ways. I don't think individual doctors have ignored it, but it actually does come up in an upcoming podcast about metrics where we are so focused on the metrics that sometimes we're, we're missing why, why we're doing it or the bigger picture about what we're doing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And also, you know, the fact that, frankly, our, our goal as doctors is to maximize the health of people. And sometimes if you focus on the minutia, you miss the big picture. And that's, you know, that was kind of the crux of some of the psychopharmacology that he was talking about. Yeah. But I, I also like how it, it also translates into how he thinks about the people he works with. Right? That he's not focused on one thing with them. He's focused on developing them as whole people and helping them find their best selves and doing that through a number of different strategies to not only help them identify what that thing is that they're passionate about, but then to help them figure out how to follow it. Right. And that's, I think you, you mean not just patients, but also all the people that work for him. I mean, the, the idea that this is, this is about developing physicians, developing the, the people that work with and, and for him. And 
you know, people going into medicine to connect with patients, to connect with other people, and to make those folks' lives better is a key reason why we're here. And I think he gets that really, really, really well. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. It was great to hear a leadership perspective that was so compassionate about Mm -hmm. the people who work for him and with him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You asked a really interesting question. You asked about learned helplessness, which you and I have spoken about a lot in the past and is no question in my mind, one of the struggles that we have in medicine is simply learned helplessness when it comes to this huge juggernaut going along and affecting any change. And I really liked his reply, which was, which is actually quite a simple thing, but the idea that you just got to stay focused on the goal. And so, you know, even for me, that's a good piece of advice. This comes back to our discussions on moral injury and the improvement of healthcare. If you can just stay focused on that goal, you can kind of circumvent this problem with learned helplessness. Yeah, and it, it when I, we were talking about that with him, it reminded me of the conversation with Don Berwick, where he said, when you're feeling helpless, act. And I think right. what Will was saying is keep focused on the goal, and even the smallest actions toward it are progress. Yeah. So maybe that's the good lesson from today's uh, today's podcast. For sure. Uh, Well, that wraps it up. Thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios with logistics and coordination support from Kenzie Burkhardt and Nikki Krauss. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can make a donation while you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes so you can continue the conversation. And you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for others to find us. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.